0: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. One day until the U.S. bumps up against the statutory debt limit, although emergency accounting steps can extend this deadline a couple of months. But House Republicans and the White House appear not any closer to an agreement to avoid a default. Republicans wanting to tie a debt limit increase to spending cuts. President Biden firmly opposed to that. We'll hear from the House Speaker and the White House Press Secretary and talk with a reporter from The Hill that covers the economy about what a default on the U.S. debt could mean for both the U.S. and global economies. Immigration and border security, one of the agenda items as the U.S. Conference of Mayors holds its winter meeting in Washington, D.C. Historic Inauguration Day in Annapolis, Maryland. Governor Wes Moore taking office, the first African-American governor in Maryland history, Westmore saying it is time for our policies to be as bold as our aspirations and to confront the fact that we have been offered false choices. We do not have to choose between a competitive economy and an equitable one. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky telling leaders at the World Economic Forum that to successfully repel Russia's invasion, this country needs delivery of heavy military weapons and it needs to be speeded up. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying the U.S. will hit the national debt limit on Thursday, at which time she will use what are officially called extraordinary measures, essentially accounting maneuvers, to extend the deadline, she says, until at least June. Associated Press story reads, In theory, President Joe Biden and Congress are supposed to use that additional time to work out an agreement to raise the nation's legal $31.38 trillion debt ceiling. These talks often grow heated and will go down to the wire with major economic damage in the balance. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy telling reporters on Tuesday he wants to negotiate with President Biden about adding federal spending reductions to any legislation that increases the debt limit.
1: What I'd like to do is I'd like to sit down with all the leaders, especially with the president, and start having discussion. I think it's a sign of arrogance if you would say he wouldn't even discuss it. I mean, think about what the Democrats have done just in the four years they've increased discretionary spending by thirty percent when republicans were in the majority for those eight years discretionary spending didn't go up one dollar and we know where we're sitting at almost thirty two trillion dollars in debt how could you do this to a future generation that in anything we do why wouldn't we sit down and talk and especially with something as serious as debt but as serious as a debt limit why would you want to wait till the end um, here we are we had democrats in one power um, one party power they increased spending from 4 trillion to 7 trillion they added 10 trillion dollars of debt in the next 10 years they wouldn't even produce a budget so any household if they were misspending the first thing they do is set a budget Um, Why wouldn't we request the House and Senate to do a budget? Appropriations, where we approve funding. They didn't even do that last year, the Senate. They let two senators write a 1.7 trillion Omni bill that no one got to see and jammed it through in the middle of December. So you realize why we have a a debt like we had in the past. Why wouldn't we sit down now set a budget, set a path to get us to a balanced budget, and let's start paying this debt off and make sure the future generation has as many opportunities as we do.
0: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, speaking with reporters Tuesday on Capitol Hill. Today, the White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre asked whether President Biden is willing to meet with Speaker McCarthy and talk about the debt ceiling and spending cuts.
2: What has the White House seen or heard from House Republicans that gives you confidence
1: that we can avoid a default?
3: Look, we've been very, very clear, and I'll say this again. Um, let me first say, let me first say this part, that um, after after the midterm elections, the president was very clear, after we saw a historic, uh, kind of a historic um, uh, uh, historic uh, when it comes to a democratic president in the, in 60 years being able uh to uh you know to uh, have a successful midterm when you look at uh, what we saw in the senate and we look at the red wave that never happened uh the president said you know the, the american people spoke very loudly and very clearly they want to see us work in a bipartisan way so the president is is wants to do that he's looking to do that but also when you think about the debt limit it is uh, you know we've been very clear uh, the debt limit has been something that has happened three times if you look at just the last administration in a bipartisan way it is something that should be hap- that should be done without conditions there should be we should not be negotiating around it uh, it is the it is the duty the basic duty of congress to get that done and so we're not going to uh we're just not going to negotiate uh, about that because again it was done under the last president uh it was done uh three times again in a bipartisan bipartisan way this is there is no alternative to congress uh responsibility here to address uh the debt ceiling uh treasury makes millions of payments each day their system is built to pay our country's bills on time. It's not set to make the United States delinquent by paying our bills. There is a reason that Treasury Secretaries of both parties, if you think about it and if you all remember, rejected uh, this incredible risky and dangerous idea that has never been tried before. So it is essential for Congress to recognize that dealing with the debt ceiling is their constitutional responsibility. This is an easy one. This is something that should be happening without conditions.
0: White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. Sylvan Lane is a finance and economic policy reporter with The Hill. He has an article at TheHill.com that begins, The biggest threat the U.S. economy faces this year could be the fight over the federal debt limit. He joins us now by phone. Thank you so much. Your article goes into some detail about how big of a threat a default could be. What are some of the potential ramifications?
4: Sure. So just to, you know, right off the bat, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt before. So we're not quite sure exactly what would happen if the country does that for the first time. But economists, financial experts, uh, policymakers all agree that it will only lead to bad things. We're talking about an, an economic recession in the U.S., if not the entire world, a global financial crisis that we have no idea of knowing how bad could be. It's just, you know, it would it would be so disruptive in so many different ways, uh, harmful down to the very, you know, household level of families missing their Social Security payments and their federal benefits, to the global level of central banks possibly not being able to interact with each other
0: effectively. And you also write about the, well, you know, if the if the U.S. can't pay its debts, then money that people are expecting, they're not going to get that money.
4: Exactly. The U.S. dollar is, uh, you know, what economists call the world's reserve currency. What that means is that all around the world, people see U.S. dollars as one of, if not the safest store of value you could have. That's why trillions of U.S. dollars are used in business deals. Uh, they're held by banks uh, and foreign governments to help port their own currencies. And U.S. Treasury bonds are one of the most frequently used products in financial markets, just to do you know basic transactions and keep mon- people's money safe. If the U.S. defaults on its debt, it would be like the gravity in the solar system going out, but for the financial system, all of that, all of those dollars, all of those Treasury bonds would become effectively potentially worthless and people would not know whether or not they could expect all of this money that they'd built up to keep themselves safe for being worth anything in the future.
0: We hear about the debt ceiling only when there seems to be a big fight over it. What is a debt ceiling and why does the U.S. have it?
4: So the debt ceiling is the legal limit on how much debt the federal government can hold. This came about during the a middle of world war one when federal spending was going way further than congress was able to handle what used to happen is whenever congress would pass a spending bill they would also determine how the u.s would pay for that money that they're spending whether it be with raising taxes or issuing a certain amount of bonds by the time world war one came around congress couldn't really afford to do that anymore it became way too much money and it became way too complicated so what they did was write a law that, that the Treasury Department can figure out however it needs to create the debt and fund the spending that we approve so long as it doesn't go up a certain amount. And over a hundred or so years, Congress and the president have raised that ceiling over and over again to account for the growing debt. We're now in a situation where the U.S. has about $41 trillion in debt, And the Treasury Department is running out of ways to prevent the U.S. from going over that ceiling. So what Congress needs to decide now is how much money the U.S. can take on in additional debt, or for how many months or years is Congress willing to suspend the debt limit and say, the limit does not apply right now. Uh, Fill up as much debt as you need to fund the spending that Congress has approved.
0: We're talking with Sylvan Lane, a reporter with The Hill. We also heard that although the U.S. is going to bump up against the debt limit, the Treasury Department says tomorrow, that the Treasury Department can also take these extraordinary measures, these emergency steps to avoid default. Do we know what those steps are and should anybody be worried about specifically what's happening?
4: Sure. So the Treasury Department does what it calls extraordinary measures to prevent the U.S. from having to uh, issue more debt to fund spending. What that means, basically, is Treasury is shifting money around different accounts. It's delaying certain payments to different accounts that it's allowed to make. In essence, it's the more complicated federal government version of moving money from your savings to your checking account or putting something on a credit card until your paycheck comes through. That in and of itself isn't very harmful for the U.S. economy. The issue is we never know for sure how long Treasury has to do that. Now, there are experts and economists who are very good at projecting the so-called x date, which is the date at which Treasury would run out of ways to avoid going over the debt ceiling. But the issue is if unexpected economic crises come up, and we've seen plenty of them over the past three years, that can move up the x date pretty quickly in ways that lawmakers may not be able to respond to.
0: Sylvan Lane, finance and economic policy reporter with The Hill. His stories at thehill.com and on Twitter, it's at Sylvan Lane. Thank you very much. My pleasure. On Wall Street today, the Dow down 613 points, NASDAQ down 138, S&P down 62. Labor Department reporting that wholesale prices fell 0.5 percent in December. CNBC writes that the drop in the producer price index outpaced an expected decline of 0.1 percent as inflation continues its six-month downward slide. This from Bloomberg News. A Russian national was charged with money laundering in connection with a cryptocurrency operation that allowed criminals to mask the proceeds of illegal gambling and drug deals valued at $700 million. Anatoly Legodimov, founder of crypto exchange Bizlato, was arrested Tuesday in Miami, the U.S. Justice Department said in a press release Wednesday. That from Bloomberg News. And there was a news conference as well at the Justice Department. Here is the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco.
5: Last night in Miami, FBI agents arrested Legodimov, a Russian national and the founder and majority owner of Bizlato a Hong Kong-registered cryptocurrency exchange. The charges allege that he operated Bitslato as a high-tech financial hub, as he put it, that catered to, quote, known crooks. Bitslato failed to implement safeguards required by US law, safeguards that enable law enforcement to detect and to investigate financial crimes. Instead, Bitslato facilitated the transmission of hundreds of millions of dollars in illicit funds, fueling darknet marketplaces, and laundering the proceeds of ransomware attacks. For example, as alleged, Bitslato was a crucial financial resource for the notorious Hydra darknet market. The disruption of which I announced from this podium last April, at that time with our German partners. Now, Hydra was the world's longest running and largest darknet marketplace, responsible for 80% of the world's darknet transactions. Together, Hydra and Bitslato formed a high tech axis of crypto crime. Hydra buyers funded illicit purchases of illegal drugs, stolen financial information, and hacking tools from crypto accounts hosted at Bitslato. And sellers of these illegal goods and services at Hydra sent criminal proceeds to accounts at Bitslato, all to the tune of over $700 million in direct and indirect transfers between 2018 and
0: 2022. The Deputy U.S. Attorney General Lisa Monaco at today's news conference at the Justice Department in Washington. A Wall Street Journal article on this arrest adding this, the Treasury Department designated Bitsilato under a section of the USA Patriot Act, a law used to combat money laundering and terrorist financing for allegedly laundering illicit funds for ransomware actors based in Russia. This type of action, a rarely used so-called death knell sanction that cuts off the entity from the U.S. financial system, has been used mainly in the past against banks and other financial institutions and in most cases has forced the financial institution to close. This is Washington Today. The U.S. Conference of Mayors opening its 91st winter meeting in Washington, D.C. today. And among the topics on the agenda, immigration and border security. News Nation writes that Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who is also president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, said the issue is creating a strain on cities across America. In Miami, it impacts the public school systems and homeless systems. And while cities are asking for help, the immigration system lacks order. Mayor Suarez is a Republican. He was asked about this at an opening news conference today. You're also going to hear from San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, a Democrat.
6: You'll be meeting with the president on Friday. Yes. Can you expand with some specifics on what you'll tell him cities across the country need with respect to the immigration policy yeah. and the impact that the, the border cities and now the buses coming to places like here in D.C. and New York are, are experiencing? And, you know, and can you give some specifics sure. of what you'll ask the president to do?
7: Yes. And I also invite other mayors who may want to. Mayor Gloria, uh, who's chair, who chairs this committee, my, my we got a chance to speak with the Secretary of State, and it'll be a similar conversation. Uh, obviously, they understand that this is a, a crisis that is impacting not just border cities, but cities like Miami and the state of Florida uh, from migrants that are coming uh, over the, the Straits, the Florida Straits. Uh, and this is something that requires not only resources uh, to help cities deal with the uh, influx, but also a strategy. And I think the strategy has to do with uh, figuring out How do we create more prosperity in our hemisphere so that it reduces immigration pressures to the United States? And I think there's opportunities with uh, our supply chain that we saw was incredibly vulnerable during COVID uh, as an opportunity to sort of uh, reduce some of the reliance on China in producing a variety of our goods, including but not limited to microchips, which we heard Mayor Ginther uh, talk about. Mayor Gallego also spoke about it earlier today um, in in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, And I believe uh, in in other cities across America, uh, you're starting to see greater production of of some goods that are in the supply chain that are vulnerabilities if we don't start producing them in the United States. The Secretary of State said to us in private, I don't think I'm saying anything out of, out of uh, turn, that the, the, you know, the, the concept of, of manufacturing, which had left our country over the last generation, is something that has to come back. Microchips is an example. We used to produce 40% of all microchips. We're down to producing 10% of all microchips, and that powers everything from the phone that you're writing on right now um to the camera that she's pointing at me and the one that's pointing at all of us uh so um, i'll let uh, mayor gloria who chairs the committee uh, speak to uh, what his requests are going to be but i thank you for acknowledging the fact that we started on time
2: President Suarez runs a tight ship. Uh, some of us were leaving the uh, extremism and uh, anti-hate crime uh, forum, so I apologize for being late. I, I would add, as uh, Mayor of San Diego, the largest border city in this country, uh, that we look forward to the opportunity to engage directly with the Biden-Heritage Administration on the important issue of migration. I, I would note uh, that this administration has been very open and very transparent in allowing us to engage with them on solutions. And one of the best ways we can show that is the dollars that were allocated uh, in the budget process at the end of this year, dollars that will flow to nonprofit organizations in cities like mine that are currently dealing with this crisis and making sure that as many as possible can get to where they need to go in a more humane fashion, uh, absent those dollars. I think beyond that, what I want to point out, you know, I've lived in San Diego my entire life. Uh, I've seen the border change and grow over time. What I know is challenges have always been significant in our our region, Uh, they have been exacerbated by changes in migration flows. And what we truly need beyond the dollars from uh, the federal government uh, is comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, What we have is a situation and we have an antiquated system that is buckling under the changes in migration. Uh, And Congress surely sees that. Uh, My fear is that the political benefits of pointing at the problem uh, exceed the benefits of actually solving the problem. Mm. And we as mayors, have to solve problems we have to fill potholes we have to issue permits we got to get stuff done and so i think our message is the hope that the 118th congress can come back to town and engage in this matter and listen you may even some of my colleagues up here may call me optimistic in this regard, but I don't know that we would have thought an infrastructure bill was going to be possible. I don't know if we thought uh, legislation on marriage equality was going to be possible. Uh, There's a host of things that uh, this administration has been able to deliver. I hope that that open and transparency that we've had over the last two years can translate into additional uh, legislative action. Uh, Again, the current situation is antiquated, Uh, the political benefits of inaction. I hope this, this group of mayors can change that dynamic, switch that imbalance, and make it so that action is necessary. Obviously, what's happening on the border requires action. It just happens to be that action right now seems to be a lot more finger pointing rather than solution making. What I know about mayors is we're about solutions. Thank you. Good job. Good job.
0: San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, a Democrat, chair of the subcommittee of the U.S. Conference of Mayors that handles this issue. You also heard from Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, Republican, who is president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. This was an opening news conference as the Mayors opened their winter meeting in Washington, D.C. today. And Mayor Gloria is scheduled to lead a panel titled Responding to the Influx of Migrants to Our Cities, but the conference saying that the only attendees allowed are mayors and their staff. One of the open conference forums today was about confronting hate and violent extremism in cities. And one of the guests, the U.S. Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta, She told the mayors that data on hate crimes across the country is incomplete.
8: There is no question that hate crimes instill fear across communities and undermine our democracy. But the reality is that we cannot be effective in prevention and prosecution of hate crimes without more accurate and comprehensive data collection and reporting. This year and I want you to focus on some of these statistics. This year, law enforcement agency participation in submitting all crime statistics to the FBI fell 22%. That's for all crime statistics. That number is even starker for hate crimes. 93% of law enforcement agencies reported hate crime statistics in 2020, but only 65% reported in 2021. Why? Why when we are aware that there is a surge in this type of activity because 2021 was the first year that the FBI exclusively relied on the national incident based reporting system or NIBRS as it's called for receiving crime data, including hate crimes data from our state and local partners Their NIBRS is a significantly better uh, system than a prior system. It collects substantially more detailed data for each criminal incident, and it provides a richer and more complete picture of all crime nationwide, including hate crimes. Better data, of course, means a better understanding of crime and how to prevent it and how to fight it. But as of today, only 67% of the over 18,600 state and local agencies are submitting NIBRS data. We're taking this very seriously at the Justice Department, and we'd like you to join us, and I am asking you to join us.
0: Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta at the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting, a panel on hate and violent extremism. Other sessions today at the Winter Meeting in Washington that C-SPAN covered looked at reducing gun violence, increasing broadband access, and also Latinos in the midterm elections. And some of the Biden administration speakers today at some of these sessions, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, and Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy. You can find all the videos that C-SPAN covered at cspan.org. The U.S. Conference of Mayors describes itself as the official nonpartisan organization of cities with populations of 30,000 or more and says there are over 1,400 such cities in the country today. Now to Annapolis, Maryland, and the inauguration of Governor Wes Moore. The U.S. Naval Academy Glee Club, part of the ceremony. Associated Press reporting that Wes Moore was sworn in as the state's first black governor on Wednesday, punctuating his inauguration with references to black history that included an acknowledgement of the enslaved people who once arrived by ship near the statehouse. Before his inaugural speech, Wes Moore attended a wreath-laying ceremony at the Annapolis City Dock, which was once a regional slave port and the site of memorial to enslaved African Kunta Kinte, who arrived there in 1767 and was written about in Alex Haley's book, Roots. After Westmore took the oath of office, he was introduced by Oprah Winfrey, who says she first met Westmore a dozen years ago, interviewing him about a best-selling book that he wrote.
9: Wes has had quite a few titles in his life. Arthur, army captain, CEO, and now governor. (laughs) The man has worn many hats, but the work he's done, the work he has always done, that has never changed. It has not changed, not even a little. He has always been committed to helping young people find purpose and direction in their lives. That's why he started a small business in Baltimore that gave a helping hand to college students who needed one. He's always believed that everyone deserves an equal shot at success, an opportunity to live well, to have lives that are meaningful and provide for their families in the way that he's able to provide for James and Mia. That's why he joined the Robin Hood Foundation, one of the largest anti-poverty organizations in America, and distributed more than $600 million to families in need. He has always loved our country and believed that our country is worth fighting for.
0: Oprah Winfrey introducing Maryland's new governor. In his inaugural address, Governor Moore talking about what he calls false choices.
10: We have been offered false choices. We do not have to choose between a competitive economy and an equitable one. Maryland should not be 43rd in unemployment or 44th in the cost of doing business. We should not tolerate an 8 to 1 racial wealth gap, not because it only hurts certain groups, but because it prevents all of us from reaching our full potential. We can attract and retain top industries like aerospace, like clean energy, like cybersecurity, and raise the minimum wage to $15 to help folks feed their families. (laughs) Maryland can reward entrepreneurs who take bold risks and provide stability for families in need. Maryland can be the best place in America for employers and employees. It shouldn't be a choice, it isn't a choice, and the path forward requires us to do both of these things together. And here's another false choice we often hear that people must choose between feeling safe in their own community and feeling safe in their own skin. Over the last eight years, we have seen the rate of violent crime rise, and many Marylanders have grown weary in their faith that governments can actually keep them safe. We can build a police force that moves with appropriate intensity and absolute integrity and full accountability and embrace the fact that we cannot and will not militarize ourselves to safety. we can and we will support our first responders who risk everything to protect us and change the inexcusable fact that maryland incarcerates more black boys than any other state in this country we will work with communities from west baltimore to westminster to share data so we can keep violent offenders off of our streets and we can welcome people who have earned a second chance back to our communities.
0: Governor Moore, Democrat from Maryland, inauguration ceremony today in Annapolis. His running mate, uh, Aruna Miller, also making history as the first immigrant and first Asian American elected statewide in Maryland. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden issuing a statement about the deadly helicopter crash in Ukraine that killed the Minister of Internal Affairs and other senior Ukrainian government officials and also killed and injured civilians on the ground, including some children. President and First Lady writing today, we are praying for healing for the wounded and comfort for those who have lost loved ones. The United States stands with the people of Ukraine in the face of this tragedy and for as long as it takes. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also remembering those who died in the crash as he spoke by video link to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland.
11: Ten hours ago, a tragedy happened near Kiev. The helicopter crash planned lives of the Minister of the the Internal internal Affairs of Ukraine, Ukraine, his colleagues, and helicopter crew when it fell near a kindergarten. Fourteen of Ukrainian families lost their loved ones today, and many more more families are losing daily because of of the, the war. And, I shall ask you to, to honor, honor the memory, memory of, of every, every person has is. lost that minute of silence. Please.
0: The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, part of his remote speech to the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, after that minute of silence, he went on and used the theme of time for the rest of his speech, saying that tyranny is outpacing democracies and calling on the countries that are supporting Ukraine in the war against Russian military to speed up their assistance.
11: The world was hesitant in 2014 when Russia, without hesitation, occupied the Crimea. The world was hesitant in 2022 when Russia, without hesitation, made the war full-scale. The world must not hesitate today and ever. When the evil... 6. Revenge. The world needs resolve and speed. Russia is exporting terror. Russia is spreading the strain of the war around the world. Ukraine offers the world a peace formula. Please, ten steps that the world must make faster than Russia makes its new moves. Mobilization of the world must outpace the next military mobilization of our joint enemy. The supply of Ukraine with air defense systems must outpace Russia's next missile attacks. The supplies of Western tanks must outpace another invasion of Russian tanks. The restoration of security and peace in Ukraine must outpace Russia's attacks on security and peace in other countries. A tribunal for military crimes must prevent new ones. The extension of NATO and the EU must outgo the spread of the Russian aggression. We routinely defend values which some of the allies take for granted as a fact of life. For us, the, the fact of life is the world in need of resolute and prompt steps.
0: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking by video to the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. The Guardian newspaper in Great Britain providing some context, writing, Germany's chancellor avoided committing to the supply of Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine at the Davos summit on Wednesday, although he held the door open to a positive decision at a special summit of Western defense ministers on Friday. Olaf Scholz did not mention the Leopard tanks at all when a Ukrainian delegate asked him why the hesitancy in signing off on their re-export, prompting an apparently frustrated Ukrainian president, to warn the same forum against delay. The German leader argued his country was strategically interlocked with the U.S., France, and other friends and partners, and that any decisions about weapons had to be part of a collective effort to help Ukraine win the war. After the speech by President Zelensky, there was an in-person panel at the forum looking at the war. One of the panelists, U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, who gave a summary of where she sees the war at this point
12: the way we would say it is not a stalemate but but really a grinding conflict at this stage, where quite literally we 're talking about hundreds of meters being fought over in the context of the front lines and uh, you know and I think very much again as as President Zelensky noted in our own analyst note is that during the winter. We expected the tempo, essentially, to be reduced to some extent, and, uh, and we're watching, nevertheless, I think, uh, some just brutal fighting on uh, the front lines in this space. But I do think, in many ways, and, you know, my Ukrainian colleagues, Deputy Prime Minister and others, will have a better sense of this, but I think, from our perspective, Uh, Both militaries obviously have challenges. It will be extremely important for Ukraine to receive essentially military assistance and economic assistance moving forward uh, in order for them to be able to continue to manage what they have been heroically doing. And on the Russian side, we see also significant challenges, ammunition, supplies morale, exhaustion, uh, some dysfunction in the leadership, and so on, things that are, I think, making it more difficult for the Russian uh, military as well.
0: Avril Haines, the U.S. Director of National Intelligence, on a panel at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. That panel also included the NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg, who said that 28 of the 30 NATO countries have ratified so far the application of Finland. Sweden to join the military alliance and that is quicker than ever before in NATO's modern history. Those two countries applied in May of 2022. The two countries in NATO left to ratify it? Hungary and Turkey. The U.S. Army Chief of Staff General James McConville saying today that Russia's plans to increase its military to 1.5 million troops by 2026 shows that Russia is not done as a threat and that the U.S. and its European allies must invest in their defense industries for the long term. General McConville also talking about lessons the U.S. military can learn from the war in Ukraine about tactics and equipment in modern combat. He spoke at a program this morning hosted by the Association of the U.S. Army in Arlington, Virginia.
13: A lot of people will come to me and they said, hey, wait a minute, you know, the Russians, um, you know, had problems. You know, with with armor. You know, McConville, You don't need armor anymore in the army. And I would argue, uh, you don't need armor unless you want to win. And 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 and, 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 and I and, and I mean that. You know, because <laughs> as we go through, a lot of you know lessons are being learn- learned as we work our way through it. You know, initially, our uh, the Ukrainians were very effective. With javelins and stingers and kind of in a complex terrain defense and and, and and were able to stop what's going on, but as you watch uh, the, the 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 conflict unfold, what what is making a difference? <clears throat> Fires, you know, triple sevens, and you see the usage rate of ammunition is, is just really unbelievable. You know, almost we we have to take a look at hey, if we're going to get in a conflict how much ammunition do we actually need to pursue this? And then and then we see HIMARS, a game changer. You know, People say that's long-range fires. That is not what we consider long-range fires uh, in the United States Army. And if you look at our portfolio with hypersonics and mid-range capability, and you take a look at the Prism Strike Missile, which is gonna ride on HIMARS, I would argue those are gonna be very effective in, in, in a future uh, conflict because what we're finding uh, is you know the and again it's it, it's certainly not at the level that we think we could prosecute. Is I, I've often talked about um, speed, range, and this this concept of convergence. And I would argue it, it, it's playing out in a lot of ways. And, and the Ukrainians have been very um, innovative on how do you locate targets and how do you bring precision fires at, at range at at. in a timely manner. That to me is, you know, and then you start to think about, well, you could imagine, you know, as we look at it, what if you were able to identify, you know, to extreme ranges where all the command posts were, where all the logistics were, and where all, you know, maybe, um, you know, airfields or any key infrastructures were, and you had the ability to um, readily attack them. That would change the way we do... um, battle in the future.
0: General James McConville is the Army Chief of Staff today at an Association of the U.S. Army event in Arlington, Virginia. This is Washington Today. In Great Britain, tensions between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom are escalating after the government in London for the first time vetoed a bill passed by the Scottish Parliament. The bill would make it easier for transgender people to change their legal gender. It's known as GRR, Gender Recognition Reform. The issue today was raised by the Scottish National Party leader Stephen Flynn during Prime Minister's question time in the House of Commons. The question to the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, leader of the Conservative Party.
6: Mr. Speaker, to promise is a thing, to keep it is another. Well, the Scottish government kept their manifesto promise to the people, and thanks to support from members of all political parties in holyrood the grr bill was passed surely in that context the prime minister must recognise that it is a dangerous moment for devolution when both he and indeed the leader of the opposition seek to overturn a promise made between scotland's politicians
14: and scotland's people
8: yeah. well,
14: mr speaker let me be crystal clear that the decision in this case is centred on the legislation's consequences for reserved matters. As is laid out in the Scotland Act, which established the Scottish Parliament, which the honourable gentleman talks about, and at the time supported by the SNP, this bill would have a significant adverse effect on UK-wide equalities matters, and so the Scottish Secretary, with regret, has rightly acted. Mr.
6: Speaker, let me be crystal clear. This is the Conservative Party seeking to stoke a culture war against some of the most marginalised people in society. And Scotland's democracy is simply collateral damage. And on that issue of democracy, let's reflect. Because on Monday, the UK Government introduced legislation to ban the right to strike against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. On Tuesday, they introduced legislation to overturn the GRR against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. And This evening, they will seek to put in place legislation that rips up thousands of EU protections against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. Are we not now on a slippery slope from devolution? to direct rule.
14: Yep. Yeah. No, no, no Mr. No Mr. Speaker, of course we're not. This is simply about protecting UK-wide legislation about ensuring the safety of women and children. This is not about the devolution settlement, I would urge the Honourable Gentleman and his party to consider engaging with the UK government on this bill, as we did before the legislation passed, so that we can find a constructive way forward in the interests of the people of Scotland and the United Kingdom.
0: British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, questioned by the Scottish National Party leader Stephen Flynn during today's Prime Minister's Question Time in the House of Commons in London. Scotland may challenge the veto of the gender recognition reform bill in court. Scotland has been part of the United Kingdom for over 300 years, but for the last 25 has had its own elected government overseeing some local issues. There was also a Scottish independence referendum in 2014 that failed. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.